be able to do is to, uh, to uh, welcome Andrea Lunsford from Stanford University. Um, I said before, and I'll say again now, uh, not since we had Kenneth Burke here as a McCandless scholar in 1991, and we had such a giant in the field of rhetoric and writing visit our campus. <laughs> and so, uh, so I, I hope everyone realizes um, how fortunate we are today to be joined by Andrea. Professor Lunsford is the former director of the program in writing and rhetoric, uh, and the Louise uh, Hewlett Nixon Professor of English Emerita at Stanford University. She served as chair of the Conference on College Composition and Communication, or C's, uh, as chair of the uh, Modern Language Association Division on Writing, and as a member of the MLA Executive Council. Uh, besides being the author of the handbook we've adopted for the Pritchard Writing Program here at EMU, Writing in Action, uh, Professor Lunsford has written more than 16 books and many more chapters and articles. She's conducted numerous workshops on writing and composition studies uh, all over the country, but beyond that, not only in the U.S., but elsewhere, uh, abroad. Uh, and she will uh, lead us in a workshop um, later this afternoon. So right now we'll have a talk from Professor Lunsford, and then this afternoon after lunch around 1 p.m. we'll have a workshop that's a little more focused on the handbook and, it's, and how, it, how we understand it to uh, operate in first-year writing curriculum. But please join me in giving a warm and welcome to Professor Andrew Lunsford.
she's a wonderful scholar and a, and a very wise woman, just I don't agree with um, some of her direction. Anyway, I'd love to talk about that. When I travel around the country, I hear over and over again that, this, that students today are the worst students that we've ever had. They can't read, they can't write, they can't talk, they, they always they talk in uh, computer language, internet lingo, and they can't think, they can't concentrate, they can't do this, they can't do that. Cognitively incredibly difficult. They call on enormous power for them. 
and I and I young people concentrate like laser beams. What they don't want to concentrate on is Piers Plowman, or you know, pick your own great classic work that we might want them to read that they don't particularly want to concentrate on. So students can't concentrate. They're they're social through and through. They're doing everything together, collaborating online every day, every way. And for 35 years, I've been trying to convince people that collaboration is a natural way to write. And I'm finally, people are coming around. I can't believe it. Lisa Bean and I, that we'll, at least we're alive to see that all those articles we wrote in the 80s about why don't you let people collaborate? Why don't you write with somebody else? Now people are doing um, Students today don't hold to traditional notions of copyright. Now this also is a very important strand of my research to me. Um, they prefer, prefer to share openly. They do believe in open source everything uh, until they get hired at Google. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of my students, uh, who was uh, part of my research effort, uh, one of my big research projects, uh, got a summer internship at Google. And he was the uh, computer science and poetry major, and he um, went in all ready to share everything. And one of the first things he do, did uh, it was put up some of his ideas on uh, about what Google might do, and they slapped him so hard. They said, what if, some, what if we develop one of those things, and somebody will have already seen it on you because you put it up, and they'll think that they have proprietary rights to it, and he learned very fast that at Google, um, you, you better hold to traditional notions of copyright if you want to stay at Google for, for very long, even though Google says it does no harm. Um, they're not into young people about the sharing economy, about everybody getting in on it, of the Indiegogo, the fun, you know, crowdsourcing, all that sort of thing. It, this really is changing notions of copyright. And I'm beginning to buy books that have Creative Commons copyright in it instead of regular copyright. Look out for that in any book you see that's Creative Right and Commons, get it. Um, now, this is probably the biggest change in our lifetimes. And it's in um, um, uh, Deborah Grant's new book is all about this point. For the th last 300 years, cultural capital has been in the academy and in the society at large with reading. Everything was based on reading and the consumption of texts. It's for the basis of education in this country and in Western Europe, everywhere in the world, really, about reading. So you got information from books, and you, it was the best you could take in, what is it, the New York Times is the best that's been, what's that? All the news. All the news. Yeah. 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 So we're to consume it, and then we pass it on to someone else, and that's what teaching is, and that's what learning is. Now, as soon as we had Web 2.0, and everyone could get in on everything, that started an enormous cultural shift from, as Deborah Grant says, from reading to writing, from consumption to production. And students today, all of us today, I think, want and need to produce knowledge, not just consume it. And we can do it. That, for writing teachers, that's been very, very exciting because we've always been wanting our students to produce, to try to come up with assignments that allow them to produce knowledge, just take it in from their readers and so forth. So, this is an enormous cultural change, and it's one of the reasons that, that the humanities are suffering so much right now. Because we've moved from, it was a 
but writing programs are going to be in the forefront of where we're going in the academy in terms of this shift. And of course, they're using digital tools of all kinds. Every imaginable device, <laughs> they've got them. So a couple of years ago, I was in a, two years ago, in a independent bookstore, and I ran across this book, The Age, I just saw it on the shelf, you know, how you can still get to browse in, in, in independent bookstores and bookstores. The Age of the Image, Redefining Literacy in a World of Screens, and of course I just grabbed it off the shelf and went running home to read it. And it turns out that this guy, Stephen Alcon, is talking about movie screens, and TV screens much more than computer screens. But I think what he says does, is adaptable to, to the screens that our students are working on a lot. So I really was interested in this notion of his that illiterate, uh, that um, literacy is the ability to express oneself in an effective way through the text of the moment, the prevailing <coughs> expression in a particular society. Literacy follows language. To be literate is to be conversant in the dominant expressive language in the age. Now, I am. Um, I would, if I were, if, if I were going to take over this definition, which I'm kind of done. I would, I would, I would take out that word dominant because I, it's hard to say right now which of the modes are dominant. We're, we're shifting too much, so I would just get rid of dominant and I would say, and I would make these plural: the expressive languages and forms of the age, and then that would be very. I could live with that easily as a as a definition of literacy. So within that broad definition of literacy, what would we say is writing now? Now, a few years ago, Marvin Diogenes was the assistant director with me at Sanford, and I tried to write a well, movie. We didn't try, we did. We wrote an article defining writing. And um, probably the worst paragraph I have ever written in my life was the one that had you know, the key definition that we came to because there was so much that we were trying to include. So it was this incredibly clunky paragraph with all these left branching syntactic structures and, and colons and semicolons, and it was just a big mess. So when I went back to it, uh, to put these slides together, I, I, I was too embarrassed to show you that. <laughs> Give her an F. Um, <laughs> just try to pull out the main points. But you know, when, when I started doing um, a long, the longitudinal study that I conducted at Stanford, I asked the kids every year, the students, to define writing. And they were very instrumentalists. They would say, well, I think something that I write down is right. Very, very bare bone, non-exciting definitions of writing. But they changed over the course of their four years in college. And I'll talk about that a little bit more later. But when you start trying to think what writing is, it's a big topic of conversation. And I think we need more scholars focusing on the, the what of writing. You know, what is it in an age of screens, as Afton says. So first of all, it's not just correct, being correct. Thank God we've gotten way beyond that. And I've seen that change. But writing is an epistemic technology. And what I mean by epistemic is that it produces knowledge. It doesn't just record knowledge. It actually produces knowledge. And if you have been writing something, and I know you have, you come to a moment in the, and you're in the groove writing, and all of a sudden an idea comes to you that has not come to you before, and it grows out. That's the epistemic quality of writing. It doesn't always happen, but it has the capacity to happen. And when the students experience that light bulb, that aha 
something new and they understand that as being the real heart of what it means to write, it's pretty exciting and they may want to do it again. So that's the first thing, that, that writing is epistemic. Um, I don't want to really go through these unless there's one that jumps out at you that you'd like to talk about. I think the um, signs and symbols drawn from multiple sources, a full range of media, it's conventions, genres, and finally this last point, which is Bakhtinian and Burkean, responds, writing responds to others and to other writing and reading. The Bakhtin's notion that the word is, is always halfway in someone else's mouth, that you have to, if you want it in your mouth, you have to get it there, you have to share that. And that all writing is responsible, in other words, it responds to something else. And Burke's notion of the parlor that you come in and, and you don't, everybody's talking animatedly and you can't understand what they're talking about, so you hang back and don't say anything, but slowly over time you understand the conversation and as he says, you put your own oar in the conversation. And when you leave the room, the conversation is still in full gear, going just as strong as it was when you came in. And that's his metaphor for life. We come into the conversation at one time, and when we die, we exit the conversation at one time. But it takes us a while to get our bearings. And it, I think it's a good metaphor for every new field you pick up. And, uh, Burke said, you know, when students go from class to class, it's like going from one universe to the next, and nobody's giving you a guide map at all. You have to learn So when I did this five-year longitudinal study, and we had made these findings about intellectual property, we found that students in the first year alone were asked to do 19 different kinds of writing, 19 different genres in their first year. The faculty were stunned to find that, to find that out. Um, we found that their sense of writing was very um, debilitated, I want to say. It was very um, not robust, all understanding of writing. Their confidence in that study, the students who came in to Stanford in that year, the most confident they ever were in their writing was in their first month. By <laughs> <laughs> the end of the first year, their confidence had collapsed, and they never got back up to as high as they were in high school. And so I, I've written about, about all these things. So anyway, I was directing the program, and we took these findings and really made some major changes to, um, to, the, uh, to the program in writing and rhetoric at Stanford. So I was able to convince the faculty that we should have a vertical, um, a vertical requirement rather than horizontal. So students take one course in their first year, a second course in the second year, writing the majors courses in their junior year, and almost all programs have a capstone course within the major that, that focuses on writing, speaking, researching, thinking. Something along those lines. And um, our, our first year, we were a major research university, so our first year course focuses on having getting students to think of themselves as researchers. They're all out doing research. And uh, we, the arc of our assignments, our courses are themed, so we teach maybe 30, 40 different themes uh, in our classes, and the student gets to choose their themes, so we're in a class that they're Within, the, within that thematic structure, though, we have an arc of assignments beginning with rhetorical analysis and ending with a research-based argument. Um, that's it's a standard 
research-based class. Um, students do very well in it and like and like it. The second year class, what we learned about their engagement with media uh, in this in the longitudinal study, the students forgot all their assignments were print, and, and still almost all of them, most of them are at San Bernardino now. Um, but they were doing multimodal stuff outside of class all the time. So our second course, they again mount a research project and they do a print essay, and then they translate it into another medium. And that, when we had our WASC evaluation the last time, we finished it a year and a half ago, but it took five years to do. That course turned out to be one of the best courses on campus for the students. They, this, these are required courses. The students are ranking them that like this is their best course. They know they don't know how to do this very well, um, and they know they need help in moving from medium to medium and, and working with, with different modalities. So that's that that's our second course. And then in the third and fourth course they take like courses that are um, attached to their majors. Our faculty in photo writing rather are seconded to departments and work with the departments on those writing the majors courses. And that's how that works. Some of the courses are brilliant, some of them are still pretty neat, and that's probably the case all over the country. So Another thing that we've tried hard to do, especially at Stanford, is to make our courses as participatory as possible. So, you know, writing classes have never been, in my experience, lecture classes. I, I mean, I'm lecturing, at, talking at you now. God would never do this in a, in a class, and I'm going to shut up pretty, pretty soon. Um, so, we're, our students are, they come in into the class, they know that they're going to start writing and speaking immediately. They know that. Um, that they are in charge of whatever is happening that particular day, um, that they know how to respond to others. We, have you, um, we've found that we have to work with students to get them to be an audience for other members of the class. So because we do a lot of on our feet presenting kinds of things in class. And so if I were, you know, if I were up here presenting, and you guys, you're looking at me, right? You're making eye contact. Our students will be, where's my, uh, got looking at their eyes <laughs> because they think they can multitask. Now, it turns out that, that people do need to be able to multitask. Fighter pilots, air, airplane pilots, <laughs> surgeons, there are jobs where you have to, and you learn that, you learn how to do it. But most people are not good at multitasking. The most we can possibly do is about two things at one at one time. So we've had to really work with our students to tell them what it means to be part of an audience. That you are not doing ten other things while this person is reporting on her research. Your job is to listen rhetorically, like Krista Ratcliffe teaches us. Listen rhetorically, that means actively, and be ready to do that Bakhtinian response thing. Get in the act. And the, the students have they come they come around within a week or two, but not you know it's it it's because they are so used to being focused on a screen, <coughs> they turn themselves around and become an active participant in a classroom discussion. We've had to do some work on that and on listening. I think listening is maybe been on kind of a lost part. So I love what these people in Henry Jenkins's uh, book, reading in a participant. Culture. Do you know that book? It's got. Uh, it's a wonderful 
book, I think, is that Scott, this the one that has a lot um, iPad on the front of it with Moby Dick, the tail, the, the uh, what are those things called? The flukes, the flukes sticking up out of the iPad. Moby Dick in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, it's a pretty interesting. That's a wonderful chapter that one about Moby Dick. But these these the colleagues of Jenkins's called talking about reading with mouse and hand, that kind of participatory reading. This used to be, you know, when I went to school and we were given our books in high school, you couldn't write them because they weren't really yours. They had to be there for the next year's class and so on and so forth. But I always, my books at home, I wrote them all the time. So this is just writing, the same kind of writing with mouse and hand. So um, Jenkins says we wouldn't consider people literate in a traditional sense that they could read and not write. We should not consider them to have media literacy if they are critical consumers but do not know how to produce and circulate media. So when we took this in, first of all, in our writing center, we changed our name of our writing center to the Human Center for Writing and Speaking, and we also do media consulting there. So that's a big shift, and so we had to all learn. We don't support all programs. We support iMovie, and we support Audacity. And, uh, the students know what programs uh, they can work with that we can help them with. We can't help with everything. They are doing something that we don't know about or don't say we have the expertise and they go somewhere else for help. But this, again, being an English teacher, I think we have to, we've had to go through so much. Every time we come around, there's some new body of information or knowledge or activities that we need to become pretty cognizant. I mean, the first, this must be about 10 years ago, the first time I ever started really using um, PowerPoint and uh, other technologies in my own classrooms, I was the worst, I was just horrible. And we so we practiced, we had retreats, our faculty, 10 or 12 years ago, we would take, and we did get remuneration for this. I was able to convince the provost that we couldn't teach these things if we hadn't done them ourselves, so we got a little stipend and we went off and practiced. <laughs> oh, I had a, many of you work with Audacity, the, well, I ought to run in with that program. It's tricky. It's tricky. Anyway, so I'm convinced that this is what writing is today and what it's going to be in the future. And I think it's, it's more exciting than I think of the things we can do with writing now that I couldn't do when I went to college. My parents, they scraped and saved up and bought me a portable typewriter. It looked like a lunchbox. <laughs> I mean, not anything if I still had it. And it was manual. I typed every paper I ever did in college on that little thing. And today, oh my goodness, it's really thrilling. So now, Derek mentioned that I, have, that I sometimes travel to other countries. And I, a couple of years ago, I, a year before last in the spring, I spent a few weeks in Beijing uh, teaching and lecturing at uh, Peking University and at uh, Beihang University. And um, they wanted me to give lectures. They wanted me to give 10 two-hour lectures. That I and they, I was in a hotel on the campus, but they turned off the heat because it was the time of year when you turn off the heat in Beijing. <coughs> although it was snowing, <laughs> so it was so cold in this little room with this one little bed. But in the bathroom there was a heat lamp over the shower, over the yeah, over the shower. And so I wrote all of these lectures sitting on a toilet, <laughs> and the door closed. <laughs> so. I was giving these, I never gave a two-hour lecture. I, and the, the students, 
and the teachers there really rose to the occasion and we did have discussions, but I did some some talking. But I gave a lecture on Burke's, one of the lectures on Kenneth Burke, and I talked about his definition of man and his in that clause that says uh, we invented no, that no, that people are the only species that has the concept of no. And so I said, you know, how many of you have children and how many of them are three and how many of them are going to say no? <laughs> so the next day, one of the, or a couple days later, someone came up to me and said, I have a present for you and it was a um, staple, eight and a half by 11 book that her son had written. Now, he was, this kid, his name is Jing Hei. Um, my point is that from the minute kids can scribble, they're doing multi-modal, multimedia things. And if you have children, you know, when my, when my granny's Audrey was seven, she was doing power, making PowerPoint presentations. Um, not presentations, she's making PowerPoint slides, and I asked her, she's making the top ten Christmas traditions in the U.S. And then the next day, she was doing the top ten Christmas traditions in Germany. And then she said, I want to do one other country. What should it be? And she started calling out all those countries. I said, well, no, not every country has Christmas. She said, well, think about that a little bit. What else might so cool? <laughs> anyway, finally, <laughs> Audrey, what are you doing this for? Is this something you're going to do when you go back to school after the holiday? And she said, <laughs> So even very young people are in, in this game, and I, I love this book so much that I couldn't help. I made these horrible pictures of it. Um, here, here is Zheng He. Now, he is barely five years old. He is writing in a second language. Thank you very much. And here, this, um, this is for yuan, the currency in China. That's how much he's going to charge his <laughs>
It's seamless. It's all part of his ability to get the point across to tell his mother, I can say no to. And I, she let me bring it home with me, and I just treasure that uh, Zheng He's uh, book that he made for his mom. So I want to look at just a, a couple of other um, examples of young people working with multimedia. And I don't know if he's I don't know if he's going to be live. Did you test these, Derek? I, I didn't. I didn't test them. You know, it's almost eleven. Maybe I'll just I'll just tell you. Well, I wish I could. We can post on Derek's Facebook. Uh oh, yeah. now, now we gotta get back into it. I can just describe it as mine. But this is a student, Sasha is a student in our PWR2 class, and she's performing. Um, at one of our, one of our many events in our lighting center. Here she comes. Photographs, 
clip art even, which I, she got mo rid of most of that, um, to put a piece together that she then presents. Now this grew out of a research assignment that she did. And she wrote a print essay about this issue of, of hypermediated lives. Then she translated it into this. And this was 12 to 14 minutes. And she, the paper was about 20 pages long, 20, 22 pages. She had to really boil down. She had to pick and choose. She had to really focus. And what we didn't expect when we, st when we started this course, the, the second course in our, in our sequence, we thought they would do that print essay and then we'd move on from there. But as we piloted it, the students started coming to us and, at the, toward the end of the course and saying, after they'd done their, they had done the transformation into a new meeting, can we please revise that? Can we make that essay? Can we please revise that? And we hadn't thought that we would do that, but they, what they had learned was what they really had to say. And the experience of translating into another medium had really focused their attention and their thoughts, and they wanted to revise that text. So we said, oh, sure, <coughs> if you want to, sure. You know, you want to revise something you've already been graded on, but so we've added, we've built that into our curriculum now. So everybody has a chance to revise that piece again and to get another uh, mark for it. And, and in general, they're so much more lively. They're so much more fun to read. Um, that young man I was mentioning earlier, uh, his name is Mark, uh, made a, uh, did a course with me on whether writing is performative or not. And I was arguing that writing is performative. If for nothing else, you start and you're performing for a grade. But it does other kinds of performative things. And we did this whole course together. And then he, because he was a computer science and poetry major, he created a software program he calls the Performativity Rater. Now, what do you think you would look for if you were going to try to measure performativity in a piece of writing. What are some of the characteristics? Think about Martin Luther King, his texts. Yeah, what do you say? Well, you probably do with ethos, the notion of the writer's identity and how it shows Yep, so somehow getting your own ethos in there. How do you do that? Well, personal pronouns, not too many of them, but some. What about repetition? You know, we think of that as something bad. Not, not in perform performance is repetitive. You, and it, take any of King's speeches and you'll see it immediately. What about some other things you could think of? Yeah. Any of the rhetorical devices or the, um, and the closeness, things, yeah. things, yeah. things along those lines. Tropes and schemes, Tropes. images, mm -hmm. vivid verbs. You know, this is not rock science. <coughs> So Mark and I came up with this algorithm, and he turned it into this software program. And then he would run something that I'd written through it, and I would get like a four. <laughs> and I put a Mark Luther King speech, and it would get like 180. <laughs> so then Mark started incorporating these characteristics into college writing, and with very good effect. So writing, we decided, was performative, and Sasha is one of the performers. Now, I also have a film clip here, but I don't think, how are we doing on time, Eric? It's after 11, should we? Yeah, we'll, we'll, I mean, we'll, we'll find for a little while longer if you want to play about it. You, yeah, let's see if we can play a little bit of this. This is called Crane Man. A young man who uh, convinced his instructor that he ought to be able to make a film 
on the film rather than write an essay. He would write a reflective piece after and present it to the class. And the assignment was to find something on campus that nobody was paying any attention to, something that was going unnoticed, and then out of that create a piece of writing, and in this case, a piece of film. Uh, we'll do that. Oh, that's his back. <laughs> that's his back. Oh, laptop. yeah, sorry, I'm actually. The screen is not always matching. But this is on YouTube, but I. Um, so this is. I should have told you I had this. Yeah, here it comes. This is it. Close the first window. Yeah, there you go. Close that one. It's group tech support right <laughs> <laughs> So he's chosen this crane as the thing that is going to notice on walking by it, you know, nobody's even looking at it. It's the biggest crane in North America. And this young man working it. His voice you hear.
took him about three hours. Um, so it, it, he's, this is much more time intensive, and Stanford students are nothing if not unrealistic about what they, so they don't come in and say, oh, I think I'll make a two-hour documentary, you know, for my project, and we'll just say, you know, you're, and, and it'll be about curing cancer. <laughs> no, how about so three minutes, you know, or two minutes, or whatever. Um, he didn't want his voice up here. He wanted to, he did hours and hours of interviews with this kid, and footage of all kinds, and not that this young man is 19. But what Will wanted to do, and what he talked about in his presentation in class, what he did some writing about, was the conflict, the tension that we feel in this young man. Did he do the right thing? He was about to go to college. All of his buddies were in college. He liked the idea of learning. He liked the idea of going to college. Parents weren't pushing him. He had this great opportunity. What was it like to get fired? And at the end, and then he says it goes, that goes, it goes both ways with that. And then he talks about his parents at the end. And so Will actually uses this, um, took, made this <clears throat> into a presentation he could take back to his high school and show and talk with kids there in the 11th grade about whether, what they were going to do, what they, how they wanted their life to go, and use this as, a, as an inspirational spark for conversation. And that, that leads me to probably, the to me, the major finding of the longitudinal study I did was how students changed their, their understanding of what writing is as they went through college. They ended up saying good writing is writing that makes something happen in the world. And they would not, and I would argue and argue with them about that, they would not brook any objection to that. They want writing to get up off the page, march out, and do something, make something happen. To Will, it was going into the high school with this piece that he had made, make something happen in the world that way. Um, I could give many other examples uh, of, of, of kids out doing this kind of work. Probably um, one of the most interesting ones I've got here on this slide somewhere. I'm going to skip over this. Do you know the, um, the uh, this site, Electric Literature? So if you don't, you, they have on it an animated sentence a section at where they animate sentences, and this is the the animation of the first sentence of the novel is pretty dramatic. But they also have something you can sign up for that's free at Electric Literature. It's free but, and they say they'll send you a little piece of story every week that is electrified in some way. So I get something from them every week. And it's a, it's a really good te teaching tool. So I'm going to skip over that. students and about 40 faculty members and it was one of the most exhausting experiences I've ever had but, I, and, but I'm very very glad that I did it. I mean, being on, uh, going, literally going around the world on a boat with 600 kids who cannot get away from <laughs> living in the dorms, you know, which I wanted to do. But I was running a writing class. I was teaching a writing class on travel writing. And everybody was doing a project about something. One, uh, one, one young woman did a um, project about coffee in every country. And some others were doing water rights. And, 
some something that they could do in every port that we stopped in. But I, these guys I met in the writing center, and they we were in Accra in Ghana for four days, and they these guys got off the ship and went into town, and there were lots of young people. They had heard there was a ship coming, and young people would come from all around Ghana to try to sell things to us. And when we came back to the ship on the first night, a lot of the a lot of the students were grousing, trying to sell us these cheap plastic bracelets and these little pictures. In it. And I said, you know, I, I don't often, I, I very rarely get angry with students. And I wasn't exactly angry, but we had a long talk that night. And I said, did you see anybody begging? No. Did you see litter? Did you see awful graffiti? Did you? No, they didn't. I said, well, what were those people trying to do when they were selling you those bracelets? They were trying to earn a little bit of money. So I want you to think long and hard before you criticize them for what they were doing. Anyway, this young man, this is Jay, and he was selling little pictures that he brought from somewhere. He lived about 40 miles away from Accra, but he'd come in when he heard a ship was coming in. He said to these kids, could I be your guide? And they said, sure, that'd be great. And would they agree they would pay so much money, each one would spend some money. So they did that. They, for two days, Jay took them all around Accra and a little bit out, and then drove out on buses. They went to the beach and so forth. And then they said, Jay, where do you want to go? And he said, Kentucky University. And they said, yeah, and I spent an entire day at that university, which was a wonderful experience. He said, I just want to get my picture taken sitting in a classroom. So this is a classroom. If they're fairly primitive conditions. Um, so they said, sure, they took a lot of pictures of the classroom. And he said, because my great, what I'm trying to earn money for is to go to college. That's my great dream. Well, remember writing that makes something happen in the world. These kids no sooner got back to the United States than they set up an Indiegogo account. And they wrote a proposal. They did all the writing that it takes to do that. And within four weeks, they had raised enough money for him to go to college. And he is now in his fourth year. And they've been supporting him as, as, all that time. And he sends us messages about what he's doing. And he's going to go, he is going to get his degree. And that's Jay. And those are kids that are making something happen in the world through writing. And that's what I mean when I say that young people today want to do participatory kinds of things. They want to produce things. They don't just want to sit and be um, lectured or be responding to, to readings. So this, the young man I was talking about who made the formativity rate or Tuesday, I could talk about him all day. Um, he said to me, I want to use writing to change the world, to change me in the world. That's a little far-fetched maybe, but that's really what I think writing is useful for. Mark is African-American, he's a kid from LA. He's now trying to do a startup in the daytime. And he has one employee, he says my employee, <laughs> uh, he is. He, he makes apps for iPhones. That's his day job. He and his employees and then there are all kinds. They're building a program. I cannot tell you a single thing about it except that it's already got maybe eighty thousand lines of code, and they're hoping to sell it to somebody. And, and he wants it to do something that would help other people. And I will see what it is when he comes up with it. He's one of the most amazing young people I've ever known in my life. And uh, if he can't make something happen, I don't know who can. But I love this idea to change the world, but to change me in the world, to change the way I am in the world. 
your last point about the link between theory and practice and, and you know the notion of rhetoric as this kind of way of connecting up theory and practice, and yet we know that the experience of higher education tends to sort of dichotomize those, that, that, that there's so the institutional structure doesn't make the assumptions we do about the connection. Uh, and thinking specifically, it was funny, before you, during the break, uh, Steve Krause was mentioning, we're talking about learning to teach writing and value of theory, and I think Steve's comment to me was, you know, beyond uh, any of the theory books that I was assigned in grad school, one of the big things that helped me was the St. Martin Guide yeah. to Writing, the, the instructor manual. Yeah. Now, what I'm curious about, I actually myself was interested in that. I went back and looked, and Bob Connors, late rhetorician, your colleague in grad school, wrote that. And I realized when I went back and looked, his dissertation at Ohio State back in the 70s was that book. I mean, I, I was stunned when I looked at the dissertation, almost word for word what's in the guide. Uh, and, and, you know, I was shocked because the guide is written in a very practice-oriented style. Yeah. And I guess what I'm wondering about, and it gets this, you know, how in the world did he get away with that? Because, uh, you know, it, I was really shocked. You know, I could imagine, you know, the dissertation's called rhetorical theory and the teaching of writing. I assume that was a version, like most dissertations, that would be revised into the guide. But this yeah, issue Bob of theory wanted, practice, that's a really long and uh, an unhappy story. He was trying to publish his dissertation as a book, and the, the publisher that was, I can't even remember what publisher it was, was going to publish it, it went under. Mm -hmm. And and Bob couldn't get the rights back to his book, and so what he did was turn it into that guide that was published by St. Martin's, and they can and he was allowed to do that. So that's how he got the work out. Well, I meant in terms of even getting the, to have that as a dissertation. I think, oh, I'm oh, sure. oh, yeah. How, how we, in the world we fought that battle at Ohio State. <laughs> <laughs> no, my dissertation was a pedagogical one. I was doing a dissertation on Alexander Bain, 19th century, wonderful, wonderful uh, person to study. And I wrote four or five articles and published them about Alexander Bain. But I had a chance to develop at Ohio State the writing workshop, which was um, the dean challenged me to the, the students who were coming in who seemed underprepared, what could we do for them? And I developed the Ohio State's writing workshop, which is still going and which is a wonderful, wonderful program. And so that turned into my dissertation. And I was allowed to do that. So we had, Bob had precedent on his side to do a pedagogical or a more practical dissertation. Interesting. Um, I, I ended up kind of doing both. But the question of how we bring theory and practice together, I, in my experience, has been through textbooks. You know, my, my book, Everything's an Argument, which is the most fun book I've ever written, uh, Bob, uh, John Ruskowitz and I were in graduate school together. Um, just the students, the graduate students at Texas were complaining. They were teaching an argument course, and they hated the book that they were using because it was very long and complicated. <coughs> and so John said, let's write a book. And so one afternoon, we outlined it. And within about two months, we'd written it. Because we'd been teaching argument forever, um, but we just never had thought about you know, writing it down for students. Um, and that, and it, it's, it is its entire basis is rhetorical. In Bedford St. Martin's, um, uh, it's been my publisher for a long time. Um, they have a hand. They have another series of handbooks that I'm sure you've run into. Diana Hacker's handbooks, 
the hacker handbook. Mm -hmm. They call it the hacker franchise, and then there's there's me with my handbooks. And uh, I don't know, um, Patty, who's here, she's a new rep at St. Martin's, but the the sales reps have always been able to differentiate our books pretty clearly. But Diana's books, they're good books. They are rule bound. They're rule governed. If you want to do it right, here's how to do it. And there are many students and teachers who want to take that approach, but that's not my my books are all rhetorically based. What effect do you want to have? What do you want to achieve? Then you decide what's appropriate. So it's not me even commas. You know, commas are, boy, a comma can be very different in one situation than another. It's about what effect you're trying to create in that piece of those. So all my textbooks take that rhetorical approach. And the rhetorical theory that I've absorbed over my lifetime is packed into these books, but I hope in a way that it's not, you know, not beating you over the head with this rhetorical principle and that rhetorical principle. If you, if you teach about the Aristotelian appeals of ethos, logos, and habits, when we first started working with those at Stanford, the students would turn in their their um, their papers and or their first essays, the first attempt at a rhetorical analysis, and that we'd come to the section now. For the ethos, <laughs> now for the logos, <laughs> they're just marching through. So, you, um, understanding the concepts is not always the same as employing them or uh, or using them in analysis uh, in a in a fluent and effective way. But I think we're always going to struggle. But your but a program when I got to Stanford, the writing program was didn't have any any framework, didn't have any. There, what Gertrude Stein said about Oakland, California, there's no there, there. Well, that was the case of there was no there, there. There was no theory informing the program at all. So I, we had to take time to articulate what theory is undergirding what it is that we're doing. And probably you do that too in some of your meetings. Some of the reason I think it's important to join together in these meetings is you need to understand why you're doing what you're doing. And for me, it's all about helping students become able to get their voices and their views and their opinions out there in a persuasive, effective way. So that's rhetoric to me. Thank you for that question. Anybody else want to say something? Well, you know, I was thinking, I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I agree with your approach about this 100%. One of the challenges sometimes with students, and to stop with this, we mentioned the hacker, one of the challenges sometimes I see with students first coming into a place like EMU is their adherence to the rules. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and they so, want to do it right. Right. So, it right. And, and also what you said before, too, and I've seen this where, uh, Students don't see the writing that they do, for example, on Facebook as writing. Mm -hmm. And that sort of like bridging that gap can sometimes be, uh, you know, tricky. <laughs> yeah, I spend a lot of time, and in, my, uh, in the next edition of this book, there'll be even more, but um, I just finished revising <coughs> The Everyday Writer, and I, there's a whole chapter in there about moving between academic mm. and social media writing. But um, I work with students in the writing center, and one of the young women who came in um, last year uh, turned out to be a, you know, I was getting to know her, so I was going to work with her over several weeks, um, turned out to be a Korean film buff. And she tweeted at least once a week 
about a new Korean film. And so she was showing me some of these and trying to get me interested in, I don't know a word of Korean, um, but interested in watching some of these films. And I noticed that her tweets are, were pretty, they were very instructional. And in fact, they were little tiny reviews, many reviews. She would identify the film, she would evaluate it, and she would link to it. So I said, you know, um, Stephanie, um, if you have, you could, you could expand this and make this into a real, re a, a big review, you know, a print review of the film. Would you like to do that? And she, so we talked about how she was, she intuitively had some skills she was bringing to social media writing. In, in social media, the students have a sense of their audience often that they lose when they come into an academic essay. So we can talk, you know, going back and forth among those things, but I think the, the discourse of social media is very, very important today. Very important, and we'll see what happens within the next year uh, with this political debacle that we've got going on. Um, and how so, what, what role social media is gonna play in that. Yeah, that's a, a big thing, I think, for students today. Yeah. Yes? Well, I'm curious about this concept of audience that you were talking about earlier, and early in your uh, discussion about um, students having to be taught to be good audiences. And I wanted to just hear you comment some more about the, some more on that in terms of, um, is this, in, to what degree do you think this is based on the idea that um, student, if your peers are not a legitimate audience, that they don't count as a real audience, yeah. um, as opposed to just a sort of, you know, general kind of, I mean, I don't, addiction may be too far, but kind of device, or oh, maybe not, <laughs> you know, sort of device addiction, that like, like, what is the relationship between power dynamic, you know, do, do the phones come out when you sit down and the student goes up there, or are they sort of always secretly out and then it becomes more obvious as uh, there's less concern about about hiding the fact that they're not paying attention to what's happening yeah. in front of the class. they're not really engaged. And I think the first part of my classes is all about engagement, making sure that we're all on the same page and we're in this together. I had the incredible good fortune once of te te team teaching a class with Jackie Royster, Jacqueline Jones Royster. Um, it was, I learned so much from teaching with her. But she, on the first day of class, when we were introducing ourselves, Jackie looked around the room and she made a point of making eye contact with everybody in the room and she said, I, here's, well, I have one major goal. By the end of this class, I want everyone in here to know that you have something to learn from every single person in this class. And I want you to know that you have something to teach every single person in this class. Now that's engagement. But it took, it, it takes a couple of weeks to get that ethos established in your classroom. And students have to begin to feel that they are part of a classroom community. So I work pretty, and I'm open about that. I'm not trying to trick them into something. So this is what we're doing. We're going to do better work if we become a classroom community. Now here's how we're going to go about it. And I, at Stanford, the students often think, well, they're coming in and they feel so special because they've gotten into Sanford. Who knows how they get in? You know, we have 1,700 students admitted out of 30,000 applications. It's a wonder anybody. I mean, it's, it might as well just be a So I don't know how they end. But and many of them are 
um, on full scholarship. Um, many of them <coughs> have come from high schools where they never wrote anything more than two pages long. We have an extraordinarily diverse student student body. But yet, so they feel all this excitement. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. And then they get there, and they, they might think they don't have anything to learn from anybody, but they quickly find out that is not the case. Uh, that these, everybody there is really keen about something, and you're going to find out about it if you get, if you get to know them. So, and, I, and every school I've taught at, uh, students come in with, and also with fear, the very real fears. I don't belong here. And I find that often, especially in the young women. I got somehow, I don't know how, I don't know why they let me in. Mm -hmm. And that, this young man that I've talked about so much, Mark, in his first week on campus, wrote a spoken word. He started the spoken word collective at Stanford, which is still going very strong. He wrote a, a poem called The Advent Letter and uh, performed it in the writing center. And it became one of those instant things that everybody on campus was talking about. He was asked to perform it in a number of other classes and different things. And the first of it said, um, So my friend, my so-called friend, my friend no more, says to me, sure, you got into Stanford, you're black. You could have heard a tip of a pin drop when he delivered this, and his delivery was really, really wonderful. And he goes on and he says, so I wonder what the hell he thought my admin letter said. And then he has three different versions. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone would have signed sincerely, whack, Stanford. <laughs> they're all very, they're very critical of Stanford. They're, it was just a tour de force. And he performed this in a writing center on Parents Weekend, and his mama was sitting about as close to me as you are. And she looked like she'd been hit in the head by a two-by-four. She'd never seen him do anything like this before. Because he was just performing. And... Later, he did that same poem with a Latina student, and she had her versions of her admin. Mm. And the next year, he did it with a gay student and had that version of the letter. And when in his senior year, in one of the last interviews I did with him, I said, Mark, remember that poem you wrote in your, when you were first at Stanford, the admin letter? Is that your poem? Do you, is it, do you feel ownership of that? And he said, I do. It's my poem, but it's not only mine. It belongs out there. So I think that he came in to Stanford, but I don't, well, not with a chip on his shoulder, but you know, determined that it wasn't, he wasn't at Stanford because he was black, and that whoever that person, my so-called friend, my friend no more, um, he was not going to put up with that. He he's also wrote a, a deeply reflective piece five years after afterwards thinking about back on his first year and he said that he he told about the first day when he came to Stanford and moved into his room and his older sister came with him to help him move in and he was letting her put his clothes away and do all those women's things you know <laughs> and he was sitting at the desk kind of looking around and he said he stood up and he said I am here I have <laughs> hard in the face and she gave him a little lecture about he said she said you think you are here you're not here because of you you're here
here because of our parents, our grandparents. You're here because of this and that. And she just cut him way down the size. And he said, you know, he'd never, that, that had, he carried that with him through his whole year in school. But he was there, he had made it, but it was not just because of him. Because that's a part of his learning that took place in the first week that he was on campus. But, so I think he had a very mixed bag of emotions, but I, I, I was in a, in a writing center with a young woman, a young Asian woman, who was there really under the gun, what her parents, you know, that one, one child thing in China, those kids, and they, and they can do everything. She was a dancer, she played the piano, she was a marathon runner, and she was supposed to get 100% in all her courses. Come into a college with that, and then you got a lot of fear, a lot of fear. So I think we have to meet the students where they are. And working in the do you get to work in the writing center? Any of you? Yay! <laughs> I love the writing center, and I'm you know I'm in touch with students that I've never had class. They never took a class with me, but we met in the writing center and worked together, you know, throughout their careers at Stanford. So um, yay for the writing center.
some are pretty darn good writers, and some, really the young man that I worked with, um, the, his whole time at Stanford, who came from the Mississippi Delta, had never written anything longer than two pages when he arrived. Um, African-American student, but by the end of his first year, he and his teacher, his first year writing instructor, gave a presentation at a conference, and he published a little article that was just happened in one year. And that young man wanted to be a doctor. And um, he really had a, he really worked very, very hard to make a And when he graduated, he went down to LA and was working, where he was, uh, not necessarily, he went back to Texas where he was from, was working and studied for the MCAT. He took the MCAT and did not pass, did not get a high enough score to get in. And he was, wrote to me about it and I said, did you take any of the, of the courses you can take to prepare for the MCAT. No, he said, because I didn't have enough money. So I have a little research fund, and I got him a ticket to take the course, and then he, of course, passed the MCAT. And in May, he graduated from Howard Medical School <laughs> with his MD degree, and he's going to do neurosurgery. So, um, and he came in. You would have looked at his writing and said, wait a minute. But like so many young people, he just has never had an opportunity to really do a lot of writing, and he just, the, you know, sky's going to be the limit, I and mean, I know he, and he's worked very, very, very hard at Howard, but um, I, I got to go to graduation, that was really fun, because <laughs> mom and dad were there, just yelling and screaming and holding <coughs> our banner. So we, I, I think that, it, now, when I taught at community college and I had older students, that was a different story. Um, their life experience I had to come at, at them in a slightly different way, but when I have the, when you have traditional aged students, you can be sure that their their writing abilities are going to be all over the map. That's absolutely what where they should be at 17, 18. That's our job is <laughs> to help them on to get on to the next level. What's different about the non-traditional students? Um, their life experience. You know, many of them all. In fact, when I worked at the college, most of my students were working full-time. They had families. They had uh, many, many, many obligations. And they, their thinking was much more complex in, in many ways, but very, it was very difficult to get that complexity reflected in their writing because they had they'd been out of school. You know, use it or lose it. As they say, they hadn't written anything in maybe 10 years. And now they're all of a sudden in college trying to write. So it's a different set of issues. But they have a lot of strengths, um, not what so-called non-traditional students, really a lot of strengths that you can tap into, I think. Are you worn out? Yes. Well, we have maybe time for maybe uh, one or two more questions. And I guess I'll ask the first one. <laughs> what, I, what I was curious to hear you say a little bit more about is, so you mentioned near the end of your talk, tension between old literacy and new. Yeah. And we have a number of, uh, of, of first-time teachers of writing and, and new MA students in the room, some second-year MA students. I wonder, I mean, I wonder if there's generalizable advice uh, to offer nowadays about how to sort of navigate the ratio between old literacy and yeah. new, insofar as you're needing to develop a relationship Is there generalizable advice to extend to master students about <coughs> that tension between old and new? Do you want to 
I can see who, who can do a bigger shrug, maybe. I can tell you what I value about the old literacy, and that is the, the ability to mount a sustained, carefully reasoned argument. Not a soundbite, not a meme, but something that is reasoned and carefully thought out and um, carefully presented. That, I think, is a valuable, a valuable skill that we need today very badly. Um, so I'm, that's what one of the things I want to hold out on to. And that's why in our first course, that ARC aims at a research-based essay as the, as the final assignment. And we're serious about research. They might be doing field research. They might be looking in the Stanford archives. We turn, turns out Stanford has one of the best collections having to do with comic books in the world. And so they can do amazing research. I used to teach it. My second year course was always on graphic narratives. And um, they could do fabulous research. We have the Hoover Institute, which is an idiotic right-wing think tank at one level. The Hoover archives are astonishing. And they opened them up to our first-year students. You want to go in there? You want to look at how women were represented in posters in 1904? Here's 50 posters for you. Take them, do whatever you want to with them. And, and our university archives are the same way. You want to go in and, and look at Incanabula or look. I had my students go and look about um, women in sports in the early years of Stanford. Um, they have a fabulous archive. In the 60s, they got a lot of Angela Davis materials, um, a lot of SNCC stuff, uh, wonderful, wonderful archival things that students can get into the women in sports. So as a woman who was teaching something like hygiene, she might have been the only woman on the faculty, but she was teaching hygiene. She started a basketball team, and this was like 1899 or 1900, but something like that, and they got about basketball team, women's basketball team, and the first game they played with Cal, across the bay in Berkeley, the girls got into a fight, <laughs> a fist fight, and they banned basketball, women's basketball. <laughs> 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 there's, there's all this stuff, all these articles in the newspaper about girls fighting and scrambling, and that was supposed to be very bad for their hygiene. <laughs> so um, that kind of research, there's a lot to be done there, a lot of community. Uh, sources that where they can do research, but or they can do traditional, more traditional kinds of research. But that I don't want to lose. So I don't know how you feel about that in your program. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's a tremendous challenge to, to get right the kind of ratio between yeah. old and new. I mean, and that's so part that's part of the crisis of even overcrowding curriculum is figuring out how to navigate, how to basically do both. And that Will Rogers, the Crane Man guy, in order to be able to make that film. He had to agree, and he did agree, uh, his, uh, that he would write an extensive reflection on how, on every stage of that process, and a criticism of it, and then, then he would then present it in class. So, um, if, if you, you know, if, you, if an administrator came along and said, "Where's the writing?" Well, here it is, and he was, Will was very happy to do that. So, maybe one more question, and then we'll take a break for lunch. <laughs> no, I, Andrea, I was going to ask you if the students at Stanford, if you think they are more open to a rhetorical approach as far as composition is concerned, as opposed to, say, 
a more rule-governed. It seems to me they got where they are by following rules. Mm. And um, it, I think of my own kids who went to Michigan, and I wanted them so much to come here because the students at this place are so much more open to any number of things. Yeah. What they said, they said, everybody at Michigan, they come from California. Those students who go, couldn't get into Stanford or Berkeley, they come there. And um, it's sort of a sameness. That's why I was surprised when you talked about the diversity of Stanford. Uh -huh. So I guess the question is again, is there, given your experiences, um, is this, this rhetorical approach for those students more difficult, do you think, to get across? You no, know, I think it's just hard to, to make a generalization about that. For some, it, 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 it makes sense immediately. For some, they want to just know, I want to know how to do it right, and That's they have to break out of that. Time. Break out of that somehow. And I often start my classes by putting a big line on the board. Uh, whatever, or the screen. And on one side, I put the word write. And on the other side, I put the word written. And I said, now you're here in, in our university, and you got, you've got to find out where on the spectrum you're going to go. Are you going to do the writing yourself, or are you going to let this school write you? Are you going to be written by what is here and not have any of it be you? Some, we're all somewhere more or less in the middle. And some students get that instantly, you know. Other, other students do not. So you just keep talking about it. I want them to come to voice and to own that, those voices and to know that those voices have value. We talk a lot about um, Kairos and its partner, Metanoia, which is the not seizing the moment. Um, Kairos is the principle of opportunism and opportunity, seizing the opportunity. And when is, when is it chirotic? When is, is the moment that you can make a move in your essay towards something or other? You know, I watched it. it did all of you see President Obama's eulogy for those people yeah. in Charleston? Talk about seizing the moment. He, those the long pauses and then a turn. And then he starts to sing at the end. He sees the moment. And how do you do that? How do you help students understand how to do that? That's a rhetorical approach. And it's not saying you have to have the logos, the pathos, the ethos in, lined up in that, in that way. So I think it's threatening to some students. It is threatening. It's threatening to me. I have to figure this out. I have to decide what effect I want to create. I've got to be the one that chooses these things, yeah, you got to be the one. And, but I'm here to help you. And just, you know, hope I can be convincing. A lot of what it, a lot of what we're doing when we're teaching writing is getting people open, open up. <coughs> thought they knew how to write because they could do that five paragraph essay and they could do well on the ACT or the SAT. And that's what it was. But that's not the kind of writing that will sustain you into your career and beyond. So, it's a part of salesman's job. Yeah. Yeah. This, your student body sounds really neat. <laughs> it's interesting that you should mention Kairos. Once about 
30-some years ago, over at Janice Flowers, you and I, we talked about Kairos for about a half an hour. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's good to see you haven't lost a step. <laughs> I'm still carrying on. <laughs> that the, you know, the wonderful picture of Kairos, which I have in some of my books, the, my favorite representation of Kairos um, is a young man running, you know, kind of like um, the guy with the spurs on his heels, Achilles. That's not that's not Achilles. What's that guy with the Mercury? Uh, Mercury. Mercury. Yeah. So, but this guy's running, and he has a big piece of hair coming out of his forehead, yep. and his head is bald in the back. So when he's coming by you, if you don't grab that forelock, you've lost him. Because then it is, you can't grab him by the back of his head at all, because there's no hair back there. So that's the metaphor that must go But to, you know, to work with students about these more complex concepts that underlie effective communication, um, it's, not, it's not like just saying, here is there's one way to do this. And I just want to say that my book, my my. My textbooks are all written in so-called standard English. But the struggle for vernacular is a characteristic of literacy in the, all across the world. You can go back to Dante burning his, those vernacular texts, trying to burn them, Chaucer deciding whether to write in, could he dare to write in the vernacular, Shakespeare. I mean, those, there was a battle, a huge battle over what was going to be acceptable in polite society. And it's taken centuries for vernaculars to become accepted. We are now in a moment, I think, in the United States where we are beginning to see a crack in the fissure of a standard language that everybody has to follow. And I'm looking for some big excitement in terms of vernacular Englishes and their movement into the academy. And I want that, I hope I live long enough to be there. And there's been an entire essay published in College English, was it? Written in Hawaiian Pigeon. It's oh. a wonderful essay. Mm -hmm. And you don't have any trouble following at all. So this is a new frontier, I think, in terms of uh, language and in terms of that kind of movement. Food looks like food's here. What <laughs> so, so uh, we're going to have just a quick break, uh, and then please feel free to kind of make your way through what will be a lunch line of some kind. Um, and then we are we have about an hour to kind of just visit with each other, to enjoy some lunch, to take a break, whatever you need to do. And we'll resume at 1 o'clock with Professor Lunsford uh, leading us in the workshop. And I would like to thank Patty for who has been here early this morning with food and is now back with more food and from, from Bedford St. Martin's. Patty, thank you very much. So let's thank Patty and also thank you.